This is Dr. Rahi, and you're listening to The Treatment, your source for all things health, wellness, and beauty. If you like what you have heard in today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Thank you. Hi, Dr. M. How are you? Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for joining me from Hong Kong. It's where you practice medicine. Yes, I'm really excited to talk to you because I think this is very interesting what you're doing. And I'm excited that you're making so many great changes, but they're so, so needed, the changes that you're making in medicine. So you practice, can you tell me a little bit about what you practice now in Hong Kong? I know you were traditionally trained in internal medicine. You've done the Integrative Medicine Fellowship at the University of Arizona, mm-hmm. same as me. And mm-hmm. you did the coaching program again through the University of Arizona. Mm-hmm. And you also mm-hmm. did, I believe, a two-year acupuncture training. Um, mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. are highly educated. Um, and so <laughs> what, <laughs> what are you doing now in Hong Kong? So, um, so I've been in Hong Kong now almost 10 years. Um, I've been in private practice doing primary care. And um, I um, basically just last year um, completed my health and wellness coaching certification through the University of Arizona. So that is um, a program that is um, uh, sort of affiliated with the fellowship that you and I did together. And I um, currently have... Um, mostly a health and wellness coaching practice. And um, so for my patients that I had um, in my primary care practice in Hong Kong, I basically um, can still function as their doctor because I'm still licensed to practice in Hong Kong, obviously. Um, But I have asked them to commit to a package of um, coaching um, sessions with me so that we can take a deep dive into whatever health issues that they're interested in. So that can range anywhere from, you know, people want to work more on their nutrition and or exercise or whatever it is. And basically um, it's much more of a uh, sort of behavioral approach in um, looking at their mindset. So a lot of people have the health information that they kind of like have gathered over the years, educated themselves or learned from nutritionists or whatever it is, but they have such a hard time applying it. Yeah. Right. So they have a hard time, like, you know, sticking to whatever it is, um, you know, eating plan. They have difficulty sticking to an exercise plan. And so really it's addressing like those specific barriers to like what it is that's getting in the way of their self-care and um, the way that they teach the um, health and wellness coaching in um, Arizona. It's very sort of holistic. So it involves like sleep and relationships and resiliency and spirituality. So, um, yeah, so that's been a really amazing shift. Like I have, um, really appreciated being able to, you know, go more in depth with these patients that I've um, had in my primary care practice for so many years. And I'm also um, doing some health and wellness coaching, um, on, line through the internet. So I will coach people from Australia or from the US or Canada or wherever. And, um, and yeah, I do some life coaching as well. So yeah, I love that. I think that's so important for a patient to get that coaching from their physician, from a physician. Um, 
because not only do you have the knowledge, the medical knowledge, but then you also have the knowledge of how to coach. So you're merging the two together and that's where healthcare is heading, right? Because um, back in the day, like the old school model was um, sort of, you go to the doctor, they do lab tests and they tell you what to do and then you go home and then Mm -hmm. you have no idea. Mm -hmm. And then there's no Mm -hmm. lifestyle changes that happen. It's almost like, uh, like a parent telling a child what to do. The child doesn't Very really like to listen to that. Yeah. 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 What? And I feel like the whole paradigm is changing now because, um, there's, there's, there's an overwhelming amount of health information out there. As you and I both know, even as doctors, we are overwhelmed by how much health information is out there. Right. And some of it is good and some of it isn't. And we have, you know, enough education to like critically sort of like sort out what we think is good or bad information. But even with that health information, like to actually apply it in your day-to-day kind of self-care is a challenge, firstly. And then secondly, I just feel like, you know, I, I actually talk about this in my um, in my blog. I actually think the future of medicine is now because we think about the future of medicine as being like these exciting advances in like genomics and like, you know, um, the microbiome and like all this research that we just can't wait to like, oh, what's gonna happen with that? And it seems very technology oriented, but the reality is, is that for any given individual, it's like, it's what you do at the end of the day, what food you're putting in your mouth, right? How many hours of sleep you're getting, how much you're moving your body. And it's those aspects of self-care that people don't have help with anymore because we are depersonalizing medicine. It's becoming increasingly about health information and about technology and less about helping them as an individual to thrive. Right. And so when I look at that higher kind of, um, I think level of optimal health, I think that we really need to get involved in sort of um, just helping people be their best selves. Yes, I agree 100%. I think one of the biggest things I learned from the fellowship that I had never learned um, because I was always just focused on reading, reading, reading and studying was the importance of human connection. And um, that was, I feel like the fellowship really taught me that. I mean, the fellowship and then everything I learned afterwards, like how did you get to where you are now? Because, you know, the traditional Western medical doctor doesn't, do what we're doing now. So yeah, how did, what, yeah. what's your, where did you start? Tell me. Yeah. So I started, um, well, because I grew up in Hong Kong, right. And so I was surrounded by, you know, Chinese herbal medicine all the time. Like it's in your daily meals, you know, like they make soups and, you know, foods that have herbs in them. And then my grandmother would go and get acupuncture. And so I would go with her. And so I feel like I grew up with um, Chinese medicine as part of like, you know, just the healthcare paradigm. And then like when I went to medical school in um, the U.S. in in the University of Washington, that was just not a thing. Right. And this is back in the 80s. And um, then I actually um, was lucky enough to because I did my residency at UCLA. And so I was lucky enough to run into a mentor who was actually from Hong Kong. And um, his name is Kakit Huey. And he built up the UCLA 
UCLA Center for East West Medicine, which is now this, you know, huge thriving kind of um, integrative program that actually has three clinics in Southern California. And, um, and so, yeah, UCLA has definitely the most advanced East-West medicine um, integrative program. And, um, and so I was um, super lucky to have met him in the early 90s during my residency, and he's remained a mentor to me. Um, and the thing is, I moved away from UCLA um, to go back to Seattle. And um, when I went back to University of Washington, as you were saying, it's a very traditional academic medical center. And so as a new professor, like I was very strongly advised to like, don't do that integrated medicine stuff because that is so weird. And nobody's going to like, you know, think that you're a real um, serious academician and you'll never get promoted. And so don't do that. Right. And so I was very clearly kind of given that message. And so of course I ended up, you know, doing other stuff was doing women's health and I was doing some, um, you know, uh, administrative stuff. And so I actually, um, did a business degree and I kind of came up through the ranks in administration and it wasn't until, (laughs) and it wasn't until I, um, became an associate professor and the tenure track. And I was basically kind of like, or I had my tenure, I should say. And I, I was just basically like, okay, well, I don't even care anymore. And I still want to go back and do this. And so that's when I did my acupuncture training and I did some herbal training in, um, San Francisco And um, and then I came back to the UW and I'm like, I'm just going to open an East West Medicine Clinic here in the women's clinic and, um, you know, hope that's okay with everyone. And so I actually did that for three years. I had an um, acupuncturist. Yeah, so I had an acupuncturist who worked. No, that's okay. I had an acupuncturist who worked with me and then we just took all the referrals from people who wanted to have acupuncture. But when you first started at the University of Washington, they were like, no, 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 don't, don't talk about any of this yeah. stuff. But yeah. then how did yeah. you convince them when you were a professor down the line? How did you make that? How did you sort of bring that clinic into fruition? Was there a lot of resistance? Um, I think there was a lot of resistance. Um, but I think that um, what helped me was um, UCLA had a very strong program at that point, and Kit Huey's was well known within the consortium of academic healthcare centers um, in integrative medicine at that point, which is you know like all the academic centers in the U.S. and Canada um, that had academic programs. And then also um, one of my other mentors at the University of Washington um, actually came back to be the dean of Hong Kong U. And um, and when he was here at Dean, as Dean, he actually invited me to come back as a visiting professor, specifically was trying to get me to work on integrating the um, Chinese medicine school and the Western medicine school here at Hong Kong U, which interestingly, you would think, you know, like here in an Asian community that that would be quite natural because that's what happens like at the consumer level. But unfortunately that integration was actually really difficult to do. Um, But the point is there were these very sort of like senior um, professors who, um, and and chairs and and deans who, you know, were already sort of very invested in the idea of promoting integrative medicine at that point. And so I think that I was finally, and I was at a senior enough level as because I was associate chair um, for the Department of Medicine, I was the chief of medicine at the University Hospital. Like I think I had kind of earned enough, you know, respect from the other clinicians that they were like, "Well, I guess if Emily thinks it's okay, it must be okay, right?" 
<laughs> you know, um, and, and I was and I was very careful to stick with like evidence-based paradigms because there was quite a big body of literature really on acupuncture at that point. And so all the protocols that we used in treating people were actually based on research protocols. And so, um, yeah, so I think that was definitely, you know, kind of my initial sort of formal foray into integrative medicine. Um, and then I actually moved back to Hong Kong around 2010. And um, and then when I got here, I obviously realized that there's so many Chinese medicine practitioners, they actually outnumber the number of private Western medicine or conventional medicine practitioners. And so um, I wasn't using my acupuncture because my level of acupuncture was so like junior compared to like, you know, how experienced people were. And so I would just refer people to, you know, the much more experienced Chinese medicine practitioners. But what I found was that there was kind of a wild, wild west of integrative medicine going on here in Hong Kong, where people were just doing all kinds of stuff. And I just didn't understand it. Like people were doing like, you know, um, fecal, you know, transplants, people were doing like a lot of IV, you know, like vitamins and um, stuff that we hadn't really, you know, learned in medical school. And so I was kind of like, I don't know how much of this is sort of quote unquote, you know, legitimate, like evidence-based and how much it isn't. And so that's when I chose to come back and do the Arizona fellowship and kind of learn how to, you know, critically appraise the evidence, figure out like what I'm comfortable with, what I'm not comfortable with, how to advise patients and really how to connect with other um, integrative practitioners like, you know, naturopaths, osteopaths, like even just reach across and have a common language with them and an understanding of like, you know, what helps, what doesn't help. And and just, I think, be um, be respectful, you know, in that space. And I had already done that with Chinese medicine practitioners, but I hadn't done it with sort of this broader group of integrative practitioners. I love that. I love that. How do you merge East and West together in your pra- in your practice um, currently? And how did you how do you find that healthy balance between the two? So I think what's um, what's good to know is that um, Chinese medicine is good for some things and not good for other things. Just like conventional medicine, just sure. like osteopathy, just like naturopathy, right? So there are certain things that we are, you know, you have antibiotics. If you break your arm, you know, like, you know, definitely go the conventional medicine route. But then there are certain things like menopause that we actually aren't very good at treating because we either have hormones or, you know, we have a bunch of medicines that, you know, sort of variable kind of amount of efficacy. And so, Um, typically the way that it works like in practice is that if I'm seeing someone and let's say they're having a lot of trouble with their um, menopause symptoms, then I will say, look, here's your options, right? In conventional medicine, there's these hormones, you know, um, you know, the bioidentical hormones, surely, but, um, you know, there's also these herbal medicines that you could try like black cohosh and red clover and things like that. And there's also Chinese medicine, which is an option. Um, since we live in Hong Kong, there's a lot of very, you know, highly skilled traditional um, Chinese medicine practitioners. And so, you know, which one sort of feels like would be, um, you know, most comfortable for you. And um, so different people will make different choices. And I just sort of like present the options and then support them in, you know, whatever decisions they make. So for example, three months down the line, I tried that 
black cohosh. It didn't really work for me. I'm kind of thinking Chinese medicine now, but I only want to do acupuncture. I don't want to do the herbal thing. Okay, let's do that. You know, so just kind of helping them explore, you know, what are their different options and then figuring out along the way, like, you know, what's working, what's not working, how to figure out what's working even. So I I like that you have that knowledge to be able to lay everything on the table and be like, these are your options. And then these are the practitioners and um, I'm going to support you through the entire process. I've never had a doctor. I've never in my, as a patient, I've never had a doctor sit and say, Hey, I'm going to support you. These are your options from every single medicine source available. And whatever you decide, I'm going to support you through. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, So Hong Kong is pretty Westernized. I I remember visiting you. That was such a great trip. And thank Mm -hmm. you for being such a nice host. Um, Yeah. So Hong Kong is very Westernized. And then there's mainland China, which is actually becoming Mm -hmm. very Westernized too, because I visited Mm -hmm. myself and Mm -hmm. I was like, there was a lot of tradition, but then I saw a lot of like, technology, Western technology, Western ways of like clothing and be, you know, Mm -hmm. like just behaviors. How was the population in Hong Kong? How did they approach like the the patients? How do they approach their healthcare? Cause I know in certain countries they have their traditional medicines, but they've kind of shunned it and like really replaced it with Western medicine. Um, so what's the culture and what do you see with your patients? Yeah. It's Really interesting. That's exactly what I, that's um, great that you brought that up, that there's that cultural aspect. So um, I would say that in China in general, um, particularly in the, um, I want to say, not the major cities like Beijing, Shanghai, you know, those cities uh, where uh, people are more cosmopolitan and more sophisticated, um, but in kind of more more the second tier cities um, or third tier or down, um, there really is um, kind of a, as you say, there's kind of a shunning or a um, kind of prejudice against uh, traditional Chinese medicine because it's considered to be inferior. It's considered to be kind of, oh, that's the cheaper option. Like I, you know, I don't want to have like the, you know, the, the tuk-tuk or the jitney, like I want a car, you know? <laughs> so they kind of like see it that, you know, that kind of a difference. And, yeah. um, and I'd say that like the more maybe Western, the more cosmopolitan the community, the more recognition there is that integrative medicine really has a role to play. And um, and people are just in general more, I wanna say educated and less um, maybe mistrustful in general. And so um, in Hong Kong, what I see is that um, the population is probably, I'm gonna say, it's split down the middle. So it's probably about 50-50 where um, some people are very open to Chinese medicine and really want that to be part of their kind of care um, and will, you know, go and buy herbs and make food and, and, and um, see a Chinese medicine doctor for whatever um, comes up. And, um, and then when that doesn't work, then they might go to the Western doctor, right? So that's kind of half of the population. And then the other half of the population is where, oh, Chinese medicine is bad, you know, don't do any herbal medicines, like, you know, avoid all of that, you know, voodoo stuff. And funnily enough, like most of the conventional medicine or Western medicine doctors are in the second camp. So avoid at all costs, tell their patients (laughs) to avoid it at all costs. And so then you have like this very 
um, weird place where patients have to be like, oh, I shouldn't tell my doctor that I'm doing these things because they yes. have been very vocal about like how evil Chinese medicine is. And so then they're like, you know, they feel like they're, um, they're, they need to hide and, and be ashamed of the fact that they, you know, want to do it anyway. Right. And so a lot of people who come to see me are definitely the people who are kind of like, Oh, but you know, I'm doing this and I don't want to tell my specialist doctor um, who takes care of my cancer or my diabetes or my whatever that I'm doing this. And so I try to like very gently educate them about how there are such things as herb drug interactions. And um, it's really better to have everything out in the open and um, that, you know, you can have your beliefs. And if that doctor isn't going to like be supportive of your beliefs and maybe question whether that's the right doctor for you, because at the end of the day, like a lot of the technical skills that we have as doctors are, you know, at a certain level, right? And so there's, right. you know, you're not going to have really terrible doctors, but you have terrible communicators, right? We, we all know doctors that are not good at communicating. And I think yeah. that today's world, we don't want that old model that you were talking about, the paternalistic model, where it's kind of like, do what I say, don't ask any questions, which is a lot of how doctors in Hong Kong still practice. It's very prevalent still, that model. And, you know, to me, I'm the opposite. I'm like, you know, I have patients that come in, they're like, oh, I found this on the internet. Like, you probably hate that. I'm like, no, no, I love when you go and look for that information yourself. I love that you're empowering yourself and giving yourself agency to make choices because that's the future of medicine, right? I mean, everyone yeah. should be invested in and have ownership of their own care. That is what we need to do for ourselves. No one can do it for us. No one can do it for us. And we're not taught that in traditional Western medical school, unfortunately. Right. And it's, right. and it's actually, um, the truth is I am guilty of behaving like that paternalistic physician. Cause that's what we're taught in residency. That's what we're taught. in. first of all, it's taught in medical school and then it's, you know, trickles into residency. And then when you're out there practicing, like, even though deep in my heart, I knew that wasn't the right way, but it's just like the way. It's and it's a survival thing, too, because when you're, you know, um, the way that patients are scheduled, you know, it's like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you know, what's the fastest thing? Tell them what to do. Give them the prescription. Bye. See you later. Right. Next patient. Right. Yeah. It's not you know, it's 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 not even like you have the time to even, you know, no. choose a different way because you can't yeah. have like a half hour conversation with somebody about yeah. here are all the options. What do you think? Right. It's about education and um, good health care is about education and active patient participation. Mm. <laughs> and that's and, really and hard. Yeah. And building that trust. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What, what do you think is like, I mean, there's everyone's different, obviously. Um, but what are maybe like the biggest things that prevent people from really taking control of their health? Um, that's a great question. I would say, <laughs> I would say that, um, it's, you know, so I coach a lot on this. Um, yeah. so it has to do with mindset and what's really interesting is that I coach a lot of doctors. And so of course, doctors already have the knowledge, but a lot of times they, they don't have the mindset to where they're allowing themselves to put themselves first. Right. 
So as doctors, we have the knowledge and we know what we're supposed to be doing, whether it's nutrition or exercise or whatever it is. Um, but we are often putting others ahead of ourselves, right? So we put our patients first. We put our families first. You know, it's like everybody else gets, you know, a piece of me before I get to take care of myself. And it's almost like there's this perception that, you know, if you take care of yourself, that you're being selfish or that you're being, um, you know, somehow too, um, I don't know, uh, vain, too vain, too self-centered. Yeah. yeah. Whatever it is. And you, you know, this because you've experienced this, right. You're in the hospital, you know, you're supposed to get off at, you know, whatever it is, 8 PM or whatever it is. And like, you know, it's like a little bit of a competition. It's like a game, like, okay, well, I stayed till eight 20. Well, I stayed until nine. Well, I stayed until 10, you know, and it's like this whole, right. And it's like this yeah. weird dynamic where it's kind of like, we're kind of trying to out macho each other. Right. And, oh, well, I ran on my knee until it was all red and swollen and I had to get a steroid injection. It's like, why is that a good way to treat your body? Right. And so I think we kind of, so there's a macho-ness on the one hand, <laughs> I'm just going to call it macho-ness. And then on the other yeah. hand, there's the sort of um, wanting to take care of everyone else before myself. And so I think, especially as women physicians, we get into this trap where we're kind of like, you know, um, I can tough it out. I have a high pain threshold. I had natural childbirth, you know, like I can, I can stick through any amount of pain a and B, you know, I put everyone else's needs before mine. And so therefore, you know, I don't get to take care of myself and, um, you know, I'm the last priority on my list of, you know, people I need to take care of, right? That's sad because um, the more I understand the human body and the more I, I try to educate myself, you know, I'm constantly reading and taking these courses, I realize the foundation of health and wellness is self-care. And so you can't mm -hmm. be a healthy like, how am I going to sit here as a physician and preach to you what to do if I'm not taking care of myself and doing yes. that? Yes. yes. That's how I view it. That makes the most yes. sense to me. Um, totally. totally. It's definitely about authenticity. And I want to say that, um, you know, the sadder thing to me is not even that we don't put ourselves first, but it, you know, if you do enough of this mindset coaching, what you realize is that like 99% of the time, the reason that we're always sort of like trying to put others first and take care of other people first is because we, in our heart of hearts, don't believe that we are worthy. And so we'll only be worthy if we stay later than other people. We will only be worthy if we do all these other things. So it's hustling for self-worth that is driving those behaviors that is making us sort of like always put other people's needs first. And in the end, that means that um, I don't have compassion for myself, right? And it means that when I tell my patients, do this, you know, do what I do, what I say, not what I do, right? So I'm not walking the walk. I just, you know, I just talk. Um, I, um, I just, um, I think I'm being kind of inauthentic with myself. And so then that further reduces my self-worth and makes me feel a little ashamed. And I, you know, don't want to share that. So I think that um, my work as a coach in coaching myself has definitely had to come from this place of 
um, really having compassion for myself, having the grace to sort of say, okay, I'm human and I have these needs and those needs are totally legitimate. And um, I need to help myself before I can help other people. And we, we kind of learned this during the fellowship, yeah. but I think that um, it's still a really hard thing for someone to do on their own. Yeah. Um, and I'm really glad that through this self-coaching program that I've been doing, that I've been able to learn that and to learn it from the other coaches. So I think it's, it's um, definitely very powerful work. Super powerful. I was actually having a conversation with, with my friend last night about this. Um, and a good analogy is when you're on an airplane and they tell you if something happens, you put your oxygen on first yes. before you put the next yes. person's on. It doesn't matter what's happening. It's you first, then the next person. And that is how we exactly. live. Our, that's how we should like live our lives as physicians and as humans in general. Totally. Like I'm, I mean, I'm a dog mom, but I'm not a human mom, but like I have to take care of myself before I can take care of my little puppy. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, the same goes with like parenting and, um, just any, anything and any, any human. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. how does, how does leaving the traditional world, of internal medicine feel and how does it feel to be doing what you're doing now in terms of making a difference in someone's life? Like, you know, when I was working as a hospitalist, um, I don't really know if I can say that I made significant changes in people's lives, like help them in the way that I really wanted to help them the way that was like long lasting. And, and that's yeah. why I had to, I had to make the change. I had to, um, but yeah. how do you feel about the changes that you've made? Yeah, no, I think I, I totally, um, get where, what you're saying with that, because I think that, um, in the hospital, it's even harder than in the clinic, right? Because in the hospital, you see this person for this episode of care, they're usually like, you know, really sick. And um, so you're kind of like, you know, fixing them, patching them up, and then like, you have to send them right out again, because there's, of course, a pressure to discharge patients. And so I think that, um, you know, you feel like, okay, well, you know, I saved this person from falling off the deep end or whatever it is, you know, or saved them from drowning this one time. But then, you know, I just was only able to help them for this little bit of time and I don't have a bigger impact on their lives. And in primary care, I feel like because of that relationship component, because you see people back over and over again, you're able to develop that relationship. You develop that trust with them. And I really see coaching as being like my favorite part of primary care, which is really connecting with people deeply and really being able to, from that place of trust, really help them to sort out like, what is their inner wisdom telling them? What are, you know, kind of the things that they, when they can pause for long enough to hear their own voices, like what is it that they want in their lives, right? What is it that um, are some really important critical issues that they have been avoiding, right? So yeah. it might be a relationship. It might be, you know, I hate my boss. It might be that I hate my work and I'm 
spiritually not aligned with the kind of work that I'm doing, which is what sounds like you were, you found out through, you know, when you're doing hospital medicine. Um, yeah. And when you become aligned with your work, um, your, your work and your spirit, then you find that, you know, everything is just so easy, right? There's just this fuel, there's just this passion. And I feel that way, having stepped into coaching, um, I feel like in primary care, I always enjoyed it the most when, and this sounds really funny, but I enjoyed it the most when patients came to me and they were kind of in this crisis state, right? They're crying, there's something awful happening, right? They're having these symptoms and, and probably at least, I don't know, maybe eight times out of 10, it was not so much a physical thing as really something spiritual, emotional, social going on with them, right? I had a fight with my son or daughter. I, you know, um, am really upset at what's happening with work. You know, um, I feel like I, um, you know, maybe lost a loved one. You know, those are the times when you connect the most deeply with people, but it's always in crisis mode. You only have, you know, 20 minutes or whatever it is. And um, yeah, and I just feel like I'm, I'm tired of like fixing things sort of after the fact, you know, and I think that's probably how you felt in hospital medicine, right? Big time. So, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, you know, how do we, you know, get a little bit closer to when the person is able to be making choices for themselves that prevent them from getting to that point? Uh, yes, yes, I exactly 100%. The whole thing with getting into alignment with the career that you want, like the area of medicine that I'm in right now is like, I feel I'm aligned and I'm like doing mm -hmm. what I was supposed to be doing. I feel like I'm mm -hmm. connecting with people. I feel like I'm actually helping people prevent disease, prevent illness, prevent anxiety, yes. prevent depression, um, or help them get through it. Um, mm -hmm. rather than masking it with a big masking tape that eventually falls off anyways. And then you're back square I one. Um, when you were talking, right. I was thinking about this term in medicine that we have called white coat hypertension, and we always mm -hmm. blame it on the patient. And now I'm like, is it really the patient's fault? They come into this yeah. awful environment, hurried, they're feeling awful, and now we're blaming them if their blood pressure is high. Like, why don't we just yeah. make the environment a little bit more relaxed? Why don't we sit yeah. there and talk to them? What happens yeah. to human touch, human connection, looking in their eyes? Um and then maybe that term won't even exist anymore. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I think we have a lot of terms in medicine where we are kind of blaming the patient, like, you know, the non-compliance and um, yeah, a lot of these terms are very, um, I don't know, we're kind of abdicating our responsibility, right. We're sort of yeah. making it about, yeah, yeah. 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 But it's good that um, there's, this community now that we found and we all had our different paths coming to find this community of like the integrative medicine and then, you know, all the other areas of medicine that it kind of opens the door. Cause I feel like the fellowship was just like a doorway for like everything yeah. else. So, yeah. um, yeah. and so now there's a growing movement of integrative medicine doctors and that's, great because yes. I feel like as a patient that's amazing as a doctor that's mm -hmm. amazing and I, yeah. I I know that more people are going to understand it more 
over a period of time. And I think what's lacking is like integrative medicine in more impoverished communities. Cause I mean, I live in LA and in Santa Monica, there's like an integrative medicine clinic on every corner, but like, what about like the poor populations of the world? (laughs) How are they going to you know have access to that? Right. Um, Yeah. There is this whole group called, um, I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, it's called I am for us. Um, I should send you the link on that. Yeah. Yeah. There's this great group of, um, community based, uh, physicians for the most part, um, who are working in integrative medicine. I actually learned about it through coaching because, um, there's a lot of coaches, um, in that community too. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Thank you so much for talking. I learned a lot. I'm excited for this talk to come out.